Good morning, church. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to page 767 or Amos chapter 5, where we were last week. Continue in this chapter. Incidentally, Todd told us that he grew up singing this hymn in Swedish. So if you'd like to hear that personal uh, recital, he'll be glad to give you that. He can at least pronounce the tune and uh, very impressive. And a personal note on me as well. My uh, wife said I need to explain this. I've had a cortisone shot in my arm for a for an injury, and it makes my face red on occasion. Yesterday, she thought I was getting mad at her, and uh, I had to convince her it was the medication. She said, you better explain that to the congregation so they don't think you're getting mad at them. So I have, uh, I, I will, I feel very hot, heated, I should say. And, uh, and then somebody out of mercy left me this last week because I was sweating so much. So I have this. You understand why I'm turning red and, um, and I don't have cool injuries. I have, you know, this is a handshaking injury that I'm treating or I have old typing injuries. I don't have any cool baseball injuries, things like that, but there's where we are. That's why I'm red faced. I love you. I'm happy, but, uh, let's turn to Amos who is red faced, uh, as he writes to the children of Israel begin reading in verse 1. But before I look at that text, I need to explain something else. Remember, we are learning what we are supposed to do in response to grace. In response to grace. I'm not making that up. We said that even today as we heard the assurance of pardoning grace after our confession of sin on page 3 from Acts chapter 10. To him, that is to Jesus, All the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness through sins in his name. Every prophet of scripture was preaching about Jesus. Forgiveness only comes through Jesus. And therefore, obedience is not a means of earning salvation, but a response to it. That's what the anthem was about this morning. What shall I bring to him? My firstborn for the transgression of my, for my transgressions? No, his will is to, is to do justly and to walk and, and love mercy and to walk humbly with my God. It is to live in, a, in response to his redemption. We've already learned that in chapter 2, verse 10, as I noted last week, when he talks about the deliverance from Egypt. That was the Old Testament anticipation of the cross of Christ. And in chapter 5, verse 14, he says, when we seek good, we will live because God will be with us. We have to learn to read the scriptures by seeing, by looking for uh, the, the, the motivation as well as the enablement for every command. And it's always nearby in every passage of scripture. So the motivation for doing everything that we're called to do in the book of Amos is we have been redeemed, the Old Testament people from, the, from Egypt, but anticipation of what she, Jesus was going to do to redeem us from our slavery. And how are we going to do what he calls us to do? It is by Jesus living with us and enabling us. It's a constant reminder that is needed because it is not natural to us to believe in the gospel. 
It's natural for us to say, I need to reform myself to make myself better, to make myself more worthy of God's acceptance. But that is not the message of any part of Scripture. With that in mind, we look again at these hard-hitting verses of verses 1 through 17, which call us back from our pride and push us forward in responding to Christ. Beginning in verse 1, we read again. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal, or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. For you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth, He who made the Pleiades in Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate, Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. And so that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you have said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord... In all the squares there shall be wailing. In all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Open our eyes, O Lord that we would behold beautiful things from this prophecy included, reminding us of the great joy, the great gift of our salvation, and therefore the great privilege of giving its benefits away. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. And God's people said together, amen. 2011. Kevin Palau became disturbed about a statistic released on his city, Seattle, Washington, as the least Christian city in America. 
Kevin Palau is the son of the famous Luis Palau, the associate evangelist with the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. He was called the Latin America, the, the Billy Graham of Latin America. And, it, and the headquarters of the Luis Palau Evangelistic Association is in Seattle, Washington. Luis, or say, uh, 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 Kevin Palau, so disturbed with the with that statistic and so embarrassed that there were so many evangelicals in the city of Seattle and yet that was the reputation of the city, he decided to go to Mayor Sam Adams and ask, what can we do to help with our city? What are the city's needs and how can we be of blessing? Sam Adams was shocked by the appointment because he was the first openly gay mayor in America. He wasn't accustomed to such friendly conversations with evangelicals. He certainly had never heard of an evangelical who wanted to love his city and to do practical things for it. It was a great risk to his political career. It did prove pretty costly to him. Persecution broke out against her or a criticism of Sam Adams for cooperating with an evangelical who did not share his view of sexuality. But Sam Adams said in an interview, in many interviews, we developed a friendship and we remained friends even though I knew he did not like, did not approve of my lifestyle and I did not approve of his faith. But together we loved our city and we found a way to cooperate for the common good. It is, by the way, what Francis Schaeffer used to call an act of co-belligerence, that is, cooperating with unbelievers or those who do not share our fundamental theological beliefs for the common good as long as we don't hide our light under a bushel or we compromise our faith or our theology. That's what Kevin Palau was doing. And so Sam Adams said, well, here are the concerns I have for our city. I'm concerned about hunger homelessness, health care, poorly funded public schools, foster care, human trafficking, and the environment. Well, Kevin Palau saw in that list something he had read in Scripture. Attend to the least of these. Those who are hungry and thirsty, those who are naked, those who are sick, those who are in prison those who are strangers. So he said, if you will give me the list of needs, I will marshal forth the evangelicals. And he did. 500 churches and 26,000 believers gathered and still gather to address these practical needs in the name of Jesus in the city of Seattle. And Kevin Palau has since then helped many cities across the country. He came and helped me on one occasion to coordinate Christians to do the same. What was happening in Kevin Palau's heart? Just what his dad had taught him. Just what his dad had taught from, had learned from Billy Graham. What Billy Graham had, for, sought, had learned from those who taught him. What was passed on through the Luzon Worldwide Evangelistic Conference over and over again. That worship of the one true God Worship and grateful response to the one Savior, Jesus Christ, always 
results, always must result in practical service to those around us in the name of Jesus. This is the mark of true worshipers. So says Amos. So says Micah in chapter 6 verse 8. So says all of the prophets pointing to Jesus as the only one from whom forgiveness comes. It is the same one to whom we respond with gratitude in practical and sacrificial and personal works of service pointing others to the same Savior. It all begins with worship. You notice how many times he says in the text, as we pointed out last week in this chapter, seek me, seek me and live. At the same time, seek good. He uses it interchangeably. To seek me in worship is to seek to do good. Why is they? But they are worshiping. We noticed last week, we noted last week that they go to church all the time. They're offering sacrifices. They're they're celebrating uh, holy days and so forth. Why is God so grumpy? Why does God say, I hate your worship. I despise your worship. I will not accept your worship. I will have no regard for your worship. I will not listen to your prayers. If they are going to church so regularly, offering so many sacrifices, keeping the holy days, why is God not pleased with their worship? Because they're not worshiping him. Now they're worshiping his name. But it's all about them. It's not a humble response to redemption. Remember a little bit of the history I have reminded you of on occasion that that Amos is from the southern portion of of, uh, of Palestine, southern portion of Israel called Judah. And he, where Jerusalem is, and he has been sent to the northern tribes of the nation that has now become Israel. And Jeroboam, the king there, did not want the people going down to Jerusalem to worship because he was afraid they would stay there. So he said, you know, that's a terribly uh, long uh, hike to take to worship. That's so inconvenient, disturbs, uh, you know, so much of your your peace and, and all the things that you really want to do. Let me bring the temple to you. I'll make uh, little imitations of the temple. I'll make one in Dan. I'll make one in Bethel. And then you have some holy sites over in Gilgal. And you have some, uh, you can cross over the border just into Beersheba. You can visit a holy site there. But you don't need to go all the way to Jerusalem. I want to make it convenient for you. I'll put a golden calf there to mark the place to which you're going. And it'll help you. It'll help you. He thought in the back of his mind. Remember too that really what you're wanting is, is convenience and prosperity. They weren't worshiping humbly. They were coming thinking they were doing a favor to God. And they weren't thinking, first of all, what does God want me to do on this day? But instead, what is going to be the most convenient thing for me? What do I want to do on this day? And if there's room to squeeze in God, I would love to. But he has to fit into my schedule. What does God want me to do in worship on this day? He wants me to come to the place where he marked out in the Old Testament, Jerusalem, in the tabernacle or the temple. On this day, he wants us to come into corporate worship. 
And why does, why does he demand that we come into corporate worship? Because he wants us to remember that he is God and we are not. So what is missing in their worship is humility. That's why he says so strongly in verses 1 and 9 and 16 and 17, if you do not humble yourselves before me and put yourselves back in the right relationship to me, that I am God, I am sovereign, I am your king and creator, what I say is what goes, I am your commander and king. If you're not put back into your place as my servant with me as your king, then out of love for you, I'm going to humble you. If you will not humble yourselves, I will humble you. I'll take you into exile. That's the play on words with Gilgal. Gilgal is also his uh, rhymes with exile in verse 5. And verse 9, I'll make destruction flash forth against you strongly. Fallen no more to rise. Verse 2 is Israel. The same in 16 and 17, there will be lamentation in the streets. He's saying, I'm going to humble you if you don't humble yourselves. And that is indeed what he had to do. When they continued to boast of their own strength, look to themselves and show no care for humbling themselves before the will of God. So what difference does worshiping make? If God demands that we come into his house to worship to make sure that we're back in our right place, how does worship do that? When we come into a place like this, think about the order of the service. It is not, uh, it is not that we gather here and we say, we're ready now, God. Why don't you come and show up? But instead, God calls us to worship. You've gathered in my presence. It's time to be quiet. And remember, I am God and you are my servant. And then, and then we are reminded that we are not only not God just by, by scale or by finitude, but we are not God because we are not holy. And we bow our bodies, we bend our knees. We have first started by lifting our hands in the presence of a of an almighty God, our heavenly father. And now we bend our bodies and we bow our heads and we bow our knees and we remember I am a sinner and I don't deserve to stand in his presence. I am one who deserves his wrath and his displeasure. That's guilt. The overwhelming holiness of God drives us to guilt, but the guilt drives us to grace as we heard it from Kendall. Drives us to grace. We're told in Christ alone there is forgiveness of sin. Stand to your feet and receive that forgiveness and sing to God in gratitude for it. And then we ask, what am I supposed to do in response to that? And along comes the sermon. The sermon doesn't come at the beginning of the service. If the sermon came at the beginning of the service, the impression would be, now, now that you've heard the law, you need to do something to make yourself right for it. But you've, we've confessed sins. We've received pardon and grace. We've accepted the forgiveness of our, we've, the atonement for our sins. By the time we get to the sermon, the sermon is instruction for God's people of how you respond to grace. That's the way we leave in gratitude. Guilt, grace, gratitude. That occurs in worship. 
But these people, and can we be guilty of the same? We're coming into worship saying, you know, you, you're the dispenser of grace and, and I deserve, and it's, it's good for me. I want grace and it's good for me, but uh, I'm going to take it for myself. I'm not going to do anything with it. They're presuming on God's grace. A few years ago, I was in York, England. I remembered a story about a man who told the story on himself, who eventually became a bishop of York. He told a story about four college friends who were touring around Europe. And they, and, uh, they were, they were uh, you know, feeling their wild oats, so they decided they would go into a, a cathedral. And they dared one another who could make the worst, most shocking confession to the priest and see how he would respond. And so one took up the dare. He went into the confessional booth and he, cons- and he confessed. He said the vilest thing he could imagine he hadn't even done, but he confessed it. And then the dare was that, uh, that he was supposed to go on and do whatever the priest prescribed. But he came out of the confessional booth and he did nothing. He came up to his friends and he said, uh, I want to, I'm ready to collect the bribe I, or the, uh, the, the, the dare. I did what I was supposed to do. They said, oh, no, you didn't fulfill all of it. The rest of you, you got to do whatever the priest said to do. What was the penance? He said, oh, okay, no problem. He turned around and he walked up to the front to a very vivid crucifix, a very vivid portrayal of the sacrifice, the bloody sacrifice of Jesus. His penance was to say this three times to that crucifix. Lord Jesus, you suffered and bled and died for me. And I don't care. He couldn't say it more than once. He was the one giving the testimony. He said instead, he really did turn to Jesus and eventually became the Bishop of York. Can we ever be guilty of the same? Of coming into a worship service, a worship service that is governed in its pattern by the, the, by the, the, the structure of the gospel and say, I have realized in that worship service, I have gone through the motions, I have heard the words, I have sung the words, I have prayed the words, I've had the words prayed over me that Jesus Christ suffered and bled and died for me and I don't care. I'm glad it keeps me out of hell, but it's not going to make a difference in my life. It's not going to make a difference in the way I consume. It's not going to make a difference in the way I regard, have regard for the poor. It's not going to make a difference in the way I regard those who are different from me. It's not going to make a difference in the way I view this world and its politics and its economy and the way I handle my personal finances, the way I handle my personal sexuality, the way I handle my personal relationship. It's not going to make a difference. I don't care. This is what Amos is dealing with. But when you've come into 
worship and you've seen that Jesus Christ did this for you, that God, though he is perfectly holy, well, he could snuff us out with just the word. But instead, he sent his only begotten son to redeem us, to bring us out of our poverty, out of our slavery to himself in order to turn us out as living testimonies of the same grace to others. Worship makes a profound difference. What kind of difference does it make? That's, the, that's what Amos goes on to say, especially in the last portion of Amos that we'll get to next week. But he begins alluding to it even in these verses. That when we worship with sincerity, then we will work for justice and mercy. When we worship with sincerity, we will work for justice and mercy. This is the pattern of all of Scripture. Our own uh, in-house theologian, Dr. Mary Wilson Hanna, did her dissertation on this very topic in Deuteronomy, but, but demonstrated in all the prophets that there is always this pattern, that when someone is defined as righteous, there are two aspects to their righteousness. It is sincere worship and works of mercy and justice. It is the consistent Christian tradition that we say we worship here in order to work there. And those who are following in that prophetic train, that prophetic tradition, are those who preach that same pattern. And it's to be expected, just as these prophets in the Old Testament experienced pushback from God's people. We don't want to, we won't want to pay attention to those other people. We want just the grace for us, but don't make us uncomfortable in changing any patterns in our lives or showing concern for others or welcoming any other different people into our worship. Don't do that. That kind of pushback is to be expected. And, and that kind of, and that kind of pushback from the world that challenge to the systems of the world is we are to expect persecution for that as well. But it is the consistent testimony of the Christian church that we look up into heaven at the righteousness that characterizes God's throne. And we cannot live on this earth and we cannot keep silent on this earth without saying that is what is supposed to be here. We worship in sincerity in order to work for justice and mercy. Now, what are the, what are the, what are the, the hurdles that we, have to, that we have to confront? The same hurdles that, that Amos marks out here. One is we are tempted to despair. And another is we are tempted to think we are little people. No despair and no little people. When God is the focus of your worship, when King Jesus is the focus of your worship, you will not despair and you will never think, I'm just a little person, I can do nothing. You know, when uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters in which he imagines the, the conversation between uh, a, a junior devil who is trying to, to get a Christian off his course and a more senior devil. And the senior devil says, to the junior devil, this is what you must do with the Christian. You must move him to despair. 
Just move him to despair because despair is a greater sin than all the sins that have provoked it. Move him to despair because despair is a greater sin than all the sins that provoked it. You see, the devil doesn't have to possess you. He doesn't have to take you into immorality to to make you a non-threat to his kingdom. He just needs to sideline you with despair. He just needs to convince you that there's no hope. To, to make you cynical, to, to make you think, uh, you know, the best I can do is, is, to, re- is to retire and retreat by, into my little holy huddle and keep myself pure and unstained by the world and, and then just wait until I'm finally dragged into heaven, then the devil gets a victory. But th- th- this is why Amos has, has said in verses 6 through 9, he's reminded us of how powerful God is. He's made Pleiades and Orion, the constellations. He turns the, the darkness into light and so forth. He is sovereign. Our sovereign God leaves no room for despair. It means we step into need rather than cower from it. We move toward the problem rather than run away from it. That's what true worship of a sovereign God should move us to do. No place for despair. And no place for thinking that you are nothing and that you are little and that you are useless, that you're just one person, that you're just a child, you're just a student, just a teenager, just, a, just someone who is bedridden, just someone who is old just someone who is out of touch, someone who is single. For whatever way you have been dismissed, you must put that out of your mind. Repent of that despair and turn to King Jesus and say, I feel like a little person, but I'm coming to you with my five loaves and two fishes. Take them and multiply them in whatever way you wish. This is the Christian tradition of of opposing whole systems. One person opposing whole systems that are unjust and unmerciful and turning them around. Let me give you a few examples to inspire you. In the 1880s, there was a woman named Dr. Kate Bushnell. She was a physician in Wisconsin. And uh, she treated a number of of young girls who were being used as prostitutes by the miners and the, and the loggers in Wisconsin and Michigan. And finally, one day when one of those women was, one of those young women, one of those young girls was discarded because she was no longer good for her work and they burned her. Dr. Bushnell said, enough is enough. This has to stop. She brought it to the local leaders. They scoffed at her. She brought it to her local representatives. They mocked her. She brought it to the business leaders. They said, forget it. This is good for business. They brought it, she brought it to the leaders of the logging industry and the, and the mining industry. They said, we're not interested in such a thing. Finally, she took it. Finally, she became such a nuisance to the state leaders in Wisconsin that they said, we'll put you on the docket for the state assembly. And they thought, we'll just listen to her, all men in the room. We'll just listen to her. We'll tolerate her for a few moments and then we can get her out of the way. She will have had her moment in the sun. 
So she got up to the podium to speak to the whole assembly. She said her knees were knocking together. She was so afraid. She was so intimidated. She bowed her head. She said a prayer, Lord Jesus, please glorify yourself. And she lifted up her eyes. And when she did, 50 prominent women marched into that room and stood with her. Maybe some were wives of those assemblymen. Others were women of power and of, and of means. And in a short while, the legislation was passed to protect those girls and make that illegal. One woman. And then there was a, a pastor, Edgar, Edgar Murphy, pastor of a very small church in Alabama in 1901. He saw the children in his congregation, in his little town in Alabama, constantly coming out of the, out of the factories with the fingers cut off and their arms maimed. Some of them not able to walk again because they were injured in the, by the heavy equipment. He protested the child labor practices. Nothing, nobody was going to listen to him. They needed that cheap labor. He wrote pamphlets. He wrote nine of them. At his own expense, he, he published or printed 28,000 of them and passed them out everywhere he could. But in 1907, child labor laws were passed across the country. Jesse Daniel Ames, 1930, formed the Association of Southern White Women for the Prevention of Lynching. By 1950, 20 years, she had gathered 4 million women and 1,355 officers who risked their lives and their, and their careers to protest lynching. Those women would stand in the road and block those mobs dragging black people to lynchings. And say, you have to go over, you have to cross over our dead bodies to do that. Four million southern white women for the prevention of lynching, which didn't stop until 1950. But it all started with Jesse Daniel Ames, who refused to despair and refused to say, I'm just one woman. Instead, she said, the God I worship on Sunday." is the God who is the king of a righteous kingdom and demands that kingdom to be righteous here. And I'm going to step into the fray and say, use what I have to do your will. Not everyone has to do something that remarkable. But no one, no one, don't let anyone tell you that you are unremarkable. Don't let anyone, especially the devil, convince you that, you that there is no hope for this world. There's no hope for this culture, no hope for your family, no hope for whatever system you have opportunity to bring truth to, to bring justice and mercy to. You say, Lord, the one who put together the constellations and brings up the sun every day, here I am. You have made me righteous. That is a miracle of miracles. So use me to bring righteousness to this area of need. What an incredible 
threatening army we would be to the devil's kingdom if each one of us said that prayer every day. One more example. A few years ago, I invited a man named Samuel Mikado to come speak to my congregation. Sam Mikado at the time was the head of the Association of Christian Schools International in Africa, ACSI. He has just been retired emeritus. He, tailed, he gave his testimony. Uh, he said that uh, he grew up a very poor farmer in South Africa. He was taught from his earliest days witchcraft and was uh, a subject of witchcraft for some time. Eventually he came to Christ. And those who discipled him made him realize that it is, it is an understanding of the gospel that transforms the way you think. And the way, and, and the way to transform any society is to go for the heart and change the mind. And that will change the way people live. And so he concluded he wasn't called to be a gospel minister. He's called to be a Christian teacher. But that was an insurmountable uh, task for him to, to get the qualifications to be a, a, a Christian school teacher because he had seven children. He was a farmer. He was just barely making ends meet. He didn't have any extra money to go to school uh, to get a Christian worldview and to get the credentials to be a Christian school teacher. One day he was at the home of a Canadian woman who had started a Christian school in his village. A single Canadian woman, never married. In her worship of the Lord Jesus in her, her little church in Canada, she had concluded, God is sovereign and Jesus is good. I want to take that to the world. Here is a place in South Africa. I can use my skills. I'm a teacher. I'm going to go teach. She started a Christian school. One day in her living room, he shared, Samuel Mikado shared his dream with her. And she said, then God wants you to be a Christian teacher. And eventually the principal of this Christian school, he said, that's impossible. I don't have any money. She says, yes, you do have money. No, I don't have money. I have seven children. I don't have any extra money. You do have money, she said. And therefore you have no excuse for getting your degree and coming back and teaching in our school. You have the money that I began setting aside years and years and years ago, little bits at a time in the belief that God would raise up a man like you from in this village to teach in this school and eventually be its principal. I have the money for you to get that degree and that credentialing. He came to the States, he got his degree, went back there to be a Christian school teacher. She didn't live to see him become principal, nor did she live to see him become the head of ACSI Africa, which represents thousands and thousands and thousands of schools, 18,000 schools in the Congo alone. Samuel Mikado, who was raised up from poverty and from witchcraft, from apartheid, lost his son, and he was himself crippled by apartheid shooters and eventually forgave both of them, raised up from that sent away to school by a single Canadian, rather poor missionary. But she had, she had put aside money to bring the kingdom of God through Christian education in that part of her village. 
What a foolish thing to do, many would think. But she never thought it was foolish because she knew King Jesus. That's the one we came to worship today. It's the one we must leave with. Let's go forth and be that light, that salt into our culture and our places of need wherever God leads us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for meeting us here on this day. We don't deserve it. And yet we have seen you high and lifted up. And we've been reminded that we are children of a heavenly father. We pray that you would not only lead us safely into your bosom, into eternity. But in the meantime, make us, Lord, powerful servants for you by prayer, by the means of grace, by whatever humble gifts you give us, we turn them back to you and ask that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth in Memphis as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen.